Welcome to the Anesthesiology Journal Podcast, an audio interview of study authors and editorialists. Hello, I am Bobby Jean Schweitzer, Professor of Anesthesiology at Northwestern University and an Associate Editor for Anesthesiology, and you are listening to an Anesthesiology Podcast designed for physicians and scientists interested in the research that appears in our journal. Today, we are speaking with the author of a publication that appears in the April 2021 issue of the journal. With us is Dr. Daniel I. McIsaac. Dr. McIsaac is the lead author of an article titled, Complications as a Mediator of the Perioperative Frailty Mortality Association, Mediation Analysis of a Retrospective Cohort. Dr. McIsaac is Associate Professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine and the School of Epidemiology and Public Health, University of Ottawa, and an anesthesiologist and scientist at the Ottawa Hospital in the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, all in Ottawa, Canada. Welcome, Dr. McIsaac. Thanks very much, Dr. Schweitzer. So it's nice to speak with you again. You've been a guest with us before, and we appreciate having you back. So let's start with your unpacking the title of your manuscript for us. Can you maybe tell us what conundrum you aim to elucidate with this study? Absolutely, and thanks so much for the opportunity to discuss it. What we're really trying to deal with here is moving past the number, you know, the large number of studies that we have that simply show that there's an association between frailty and mortality. That is well established. There are literally thousands of papers on it, and it's not really something that we need to continue to study unless we're going to look at it in a new and different way. What we wanted to understand was what are some of the pathways that lead from having frailty before surgery to dying after surgery? And to what extent do complications play a role in that pathway from preoperative frailty to postoperative mortality? The idea here being that if we can understand the pathways that patients move through in terms of experiencing complications and potentially dying after surgery, then we're going to have better insights into what happens and a better idea of how to maybe prevent those bad things from happening. So, we already know that frailty increases the risk of complications with surgery, as you've noted, and perioperative complications increase the risk of mortality. And therefore, I guess we can conclude that frailty increases perioperative mortality. So, does it really matter if frailty has a direct or indirect effect on the mortality? So I think that's a really great question. And again, this comes back to the idea of do we only care about the fact that frailty is predictive or associated with postoperative mortality, or do we care about why and are we going to start to do something to try and reduce the risk of mortality in our older patients who are having frailty? I think that we need to be thinking a bit more deeply about this issue. We have an older population. We have a lot of frailty in that population, and people with frailty often need to have surgery. So we need to start moving forward and figuring out what are the strategies that we can use to try and improve outcomes for our older surgical patients with frailty. And part of doing that is going to be to understand what is it that leads to mortality. Is it because you have frailty and you're just not really you know, strong enough and have enough reserve to tolerate the stress of surgery? Or is it that we can get you through surgery, but then afterwards you're in this vulnerable position where you may have a higher rate of complications and then, of course, may move on to dying? So if we can understand these pathways, we can understand the relative contribution of different aspects of how people move through the perioperative period, then we may be better informed about what types of strategies we need to develop and in the future evaluate to improve outcomes for this really large population of older people with frailty who are routinely having surgery. 
aha, so you actually want to do something about it. So you have to understand how to have targeted um, interventions. It's at times like this that I really wish this podcast was more than just audio because I do think your figure one in your manuscript is really an excellent visual representation of the essence of what you just described and what you intended to explore with this study. And so I really encourage our listeners to check that out. So what do we already know about mortality after surgery? Um, And what percentage of patients, not just the frail ones, um, appear to die directly from complications or the stress of surgery compared to dying after surgery from a pre-existing problem such as cancer or heart disease that maybe they would die from even without surgery? Um, And I guess I just wanted to establish this before we sort of get into then those differences with frail patients. Absolutely, and that's a really good question. I think the challenge in answering your question is that there really aren't a lot of studies like ours out there in the literature. There aren't a lot of mediation studies, and this is one way that we can start to tackle these questions, that look at both the direct effect of a risk factor like frailty, as well as the indirect pathway that may move through a mediator like complications. But there are certainly studies out there that describe that at least half, probably more like two-thirds of surgical patients who die in the early post-operative period, that in-hospital or 30-day window, experience a complication before they die. So this is certainly a, a large group of patients. And I mean, I think that reflects our clinical experience uh, that when we're in hospital and we have patients who's been through the operating room and then they end up dying in hospital, there's typically some complications that certainly arise. I think what's important about the question of frailty is that people with frailty both present with a different type of of risk profile, but they also arrive with potentially different goals of care. And we know that outside of surgery, the cause of death in people with frailty differs than the cause of death in people without frailty. People with frailty are more likely to die of, directly because of you know, cancer-related issues, because of cognitive and dementia-related issues, whereas people without frailty uh, may be more likely to directly have contributions from cardiopulmonary causes and so on. So basically, we need to understand in this relatively unique group of people who have frailty, to what extent is it this complication-mediated pathway that we kind of intrinsically see whenever we're in the hospital setting, but how often is it other contributors to mortality that are happening, again, because people either have a different risk profile or because people have come in expecting to move through a different kind of process and pathway in the perioperative period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Based on what we already know, that frailty seems to be a bad thing for patients facing surgery. Um, Can you rank its importance, perhaps, or put in perspective in the perioperative complication and mortality risk um, against other risk factors? Absolutely. So it's tough to be really definitive and say, you know, frailty is number one and multimorbidity is number two and a different comorbidity is number three. Um, But we do certainly know that frailty is amongst the strongest risk factors for adverse events in older surgical patients. And we're fortunate that we have systematic reviews from people like Jennifer Watt, who's a geriatrician at the University of Toronto, who've actually gone out and synthesized the literature to identify what the strongest risk factors are for complications after surgery in older people. And in that setting, you know, frailty has clearly been shown to be, if not the most strongest, then one of the strongest predictors of complications in, in older people. Although we didn't look specifically at delirium in the study, you know, frailty is also shown to be one of the strongest risk factors uh, for developing delirium after surgery. So 
when we reflect back on how we care for older people with frailty, it all starts with identifying frailty before surgery by doing a routine frailty assessment, and there's multiple guidelines that now recommend that we do that. The reason that they recommend that is because when we identify that older person with frailty, we've identified somebody who is at much higher risk of complications, mortality, and delirium, things we obviously all care about and our patients do too, um, who are going to be coming through the operating room, and we probably need to do something different to help them safely traverse the perioperative period. And with the aging population, and I guess surgeons being better and better at minimally invasive procedures and anesthesiology perhaps getting safer, it's a confluence of, of need, right? I think so, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a higher prevalence of frailty, and in fact, we see a higher prevalence of frailty in our surgical patients than we do in kind of age-matched non-surgical patients. I think part of that is because the reason people often need to have surgery is closely tied into the reason that they have frailty. So one might think that if we can safely get people through the perioperative period so that they can successfully have surgery, perhaps in the long run, they may have less frailty, better function, and better quality of life moving forward. So that begs the question, how much does frailty contribute to mortality or do we know, even in a non-surgical group of people? Absolutely. So in non-surgical patients, so let's just say, you know, community-dwelling older adults, at any time, somebody with frailty is between 1.5 and 2 times more likely to die than somebody who doesn't have frailty. Now, in the perioperative setting, that risk appears to be a little bit higher. In, in well-done systematic reviews that pool together observational studies that have good measurement of frailty and good ascertainment of outcomes, and they start to adjust for those other risk factors that we know to be pertinent in the perioperative period, we see more of a two- to four-fold increase in risk associated with frailty. So certainly frailty is a relevant uh, entity, whether you're talking about primary care, acute care, perioperative care, but there does seem to be kind of a a unique risk aspect associated with surgery and frailty for sure. We see frailty at a higher prevalence, as I mentioned earlier, and we see a slightly greater risk associated with it. So let's get to some more details of your study. How did you actually do this study? That's a question I'll try to be succinct on. Um, you know, in simple terms, we tried to really think a lot about this question up front. We put our thoughts together and registered a protocol so that we were going to be really clear and transparent about what we were going to do. And then we actually relied on a lot of computing time to run these Bayesian analyses that can be pretty data intensive. Um, but in more concrete terms, you know, first we wanted to define a surgical population that we thought was relevant to this question and relevant to people with frailty. Then we had to find a, a data source that we could accurately identify that population where we could accurately identify the presence of frailty as our, you know, exposure of interest, where we could accurately identify the presence of complications as our mediator, and then mortality as our outcome variable. Once we had that, all, all that in place and we used the NSQIP patient use file to, to put all of that together, we then started to get into the bigger details, make sure that we had good control for confounding, and then we had to start building some models to help us untangle this question of how much of the risk associated with frailty is directly related to the frailty that pre-exists before surgery and how much of it operates through this indirect pathway related to having a complication. Ultimately, we needed to build two different models one that first looked at the association between frailty and complications, and then a second that jointly looked at the influence of frailty and complications on mortality. We could then use the joint output from these two different models to start to break down the relative contribution of frailty as well as the indirect contribution of, uh, of complications as we describe. 
You know, I applaud you for all of the, it sounds like, thought and, and time you put into actually, you know, trying to design the best study. I think, you know, we, we're always taught, you know, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? And that these things are always so much more complex, right, when you start to dive into it and, and put pencil to paper and design what you want to answer. Um, so you did succinctly describe what I assume was many, many, many hours of work. <laughs> Well, Dr. Schweitzer, that's nice of you to say, and I mean, this is one of the things that we can also thank COVID for. This is a study that we started to think about when, when COVID first hit and our operating room volumes were down, and we thought, you know, we have some time to think about how we can do some meaningful, important research and push the envelope a little bit, so we were able to leverage some of that time to start get this stuff moving. Yes, there have been a few silver linings in all of this, I guess, um, and I applaud you for not getting just depressed like many of us did and put our pajamas on and overeat and stay in bed, but actually <laughs> utilize There was a little time. bit of that. <laughs> so can you tell us about the cohorts of patients you studied or selected to study? Absolutely. So one of the things that we try to focus on in our research group is really trying to put an emphasis on replicability. Um, and trying to use, you know, well-accepted and well-validated uh, definitions, especially whenever we're trying to work with routinely collected data, be it registry data like the NSQIP or routinely collected healthcare data, which we often also work with. So for this study, we actually defined our cohort using an approach that was published in anesthesiology in 2018, I believe, from your group. And this basically allowed, uh, you know, a group of surgeries based on their current procedural terminology codes in the NSQIP to be identified based on kind of their intrinsic risk. So I know you guys did some interesting analyses to identify that group of codes. So we were able to identify intermediate to high-risk surgeries. In the intermediate group, these would have been procedures like uh, hip replacements or genitourinary laparoscopy, so kind of those moderate-risk surgeries. And in the high-risk group, you then have, um, you know, large open abdominal procedures as well as vascular procedures being fairly common. So we wanted to have a group of, you know, high-risk surgeries that were both going to have a high risk of mortality and a high risk of complications as well as a good prevalence of people with frailty based on what we expected to find. So you've mentioned a couple times, you know, the NSQIP, and I just want to clarify that that's the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, right, that the American College of Surgeons has developed and is a fairly robust data set to be able to pull from. That's right. Our hospital, like many hospitals, participates in that, and therefore we're able to access those data. And I should have defined that acronym earlier, but it's certainly important to recognize the work that goes into creating a, a registry like that that we can then use to better understand the, the care and outcomes of the patients that we uh, take care of. Yes, no, we've become a world of acronyms, I think, um, and so no apologies necessary. We, someday we're just going to talk with a bunch of letters, I think. <laughs> but we won't talk at all. We'll just text. <laughs> you're right. You're right. And then we definitely aren't going to just use letters. Yeah. Um, so frail patients have more comorbidities, and comorbidities increase risk of frailty, right? They go hand in hand. I think we've kind of said this is a circular kind of thing. So how do you even start to sort of tease these apart? And does the NISQIP have a frailty classification in it? So that's a, a really important set of, of considerations. And again, that's why we try to put some thought into this up front. So for sure, people with frailty very routinely have a large count of comorbidities. In other words, they are very often multimorbid. However, most people who have multimorbidity don't actually have frailty. Um, put another way, these are kind of related but distinct entities. 
And we need to be able to account both for the comorbidity-associated risk as well as specifically for the frailty-associated risk whenever we're trying to do an analysis like this one. I think this is a key point, whether you're doing research in frailty or whether you're going to use frailty as a clinical risk factor, you need to really have some understanding of what frailty is and what frailty isn't. And I think, unfortunately, the literature is pretty noisy uh, and there's a lot of confusion and a lot of things out there that are called frailty that really are not frailty. So in terms of the NSQIP, the NSQIP doesn't officially have a frailty variable that they collect. However, you know, lots of industrious people have tried to figure out how to measure frailty in the NSQIP. And there have been two main approaches that have been used, although we didn't use either of those in our study, and I'll explain why. So both approaches that have been described have been modified frailty indices. So a frailty index is this idea that we count up a number of variables, we count those that are present, we divide it by the number that we have measured. It's going to give us a frailty index score to define frailty. Lower scores, lower frailty, higher scores, higher frailty. The challenge with the NSQIP, though, is that we don't have enough different variables from enough different domains of health to truly capture what frailty is, which, which has to be a multidimensional kind of construct. So the 11-item modified frailty index and the 5-item modified frailty index in the NSQIP have both tried to mimic a frailty index, but when you really look at both at a face level, they're really just reduced comorbidity indices. Each of them have some you know, single variables that aren't specifically comorbidity, but ultimately they're more so a reduced Charlson comorbidity index than they are a frailty index. And in fact, we've done previous research comparing these modified frailty indices to better, more multidimensional ways to measure frailty. And we've found that these more multidimensional approaches provide us both with a more accurate assessment of risk as well as new added information above and beyond our usual risk factors. And I'll, I'll be a bit more specific about that. If you add the five-item NSQIP frailty index to the NSQIP risk calculator variables, you actually, what we found, have worse performance in predicting outcomes. Whereas if you use a more multidimensional construct, and in our case we use the risk analysis administrative, which is a, a fairly well-done uh, frailty index based on applying weights to a number of different geriatric and comorbid conditions, we can actually have improved predictive performance of the NSQIP risk calculator uh, relative to the risk calculator on its own. So we'd done some previous work. We'd identified a better way to study frailty in the NSQIP data, and therefore we moved ahead using this risk analysis index in these data to measure frailty as our main exposure and then to study its association with mortality and the role of complications as a mediator. Thank you. Um, I have a much better understanding of how you did that because, as you mentioned, we had done some work with the NSQIP, and I periodically participate in some other endeavors we're doing, and I was a little bit challenged to how you actually managed to, you know, do what you did. What were some of the complications that you actually assessed in this cohort? So I suspect many listeners are probably familiar with the NSQIP's online risk calculator. And whenever you punch in a patient's individualized or personalized risk profile, it'll give you a risk profile related to their risk of experiencing a serious complication. So we coded our complications variable based on the serious complications listed by the NSQIP risk calculator. Basically, these are serious cardiac, pulmonary, hematologic, infectious, and renal conditions. And how did you deal with more than one complication? Because many of these patients, right, are going to be at risk for multiple ones. 
So that was a tough one. That was one we really had to think around for sure. And ultimately, we came down to two, I think, complementary approaches, um, although you know, neither of them were probably perfect. So as you said, people can have more than one complication, and there are multiple types of complications, so we really needed to account for that somehow. So the first thing that we did was we, we pre-specified all of this. We created groupings of cardiopulmonary complications, infectious complications, and renal complications. And then the first approach that we took was basically to allow people to have any of those subtypes of complications that they may have experienced. So one person could have been coded to have both a cardiopulmonary and an infectious complication for the purposes of that analysis. We thought that that reflected reality because, as we probably all experience, especially when people die, they often experience multiple complications. But we also recognized that that overlap could leave behind some statistical noise that we'd have to deal with. So the second approach that we took was to try to deal with that statistical noise. And that was basically to limit our cohort to people who had experienced only one complication so that there was no overlap between groups. Now, this obviously isn't as generalizable because we're excluding people who had multiple complications, but it allowed us to cancel out some of the noise from those overlaps. The nice thing here is that when we tested both approaches, you know, the quantitative findings weren't exactly the same, but at a qualitative level, we largely found the same thing, regardless of which approach we took. Hmm. You mentioned the statistics here, and it seems to me like you used and described some pretty sophisticated uh, statistical analyses. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you did and why? Sure. And again, I'll, I'll try to be succinct and keep it relevant. So, you know, the types of analyses that we used here are probably unfamiliar to a lot of readers for two reasons, and that's because we used both a technique called mediation analysis, which certainly has been published in the journal and other journals before, um, but isn't commonly seen. Um, and then we also used, you know, a Bayesian framework for our analyses, which, again, isn't quite as common as, as the usual frequentist approach. So for the mediation analyses, basically we're running two regression models together or, or jointly. And basically, we have one model that predicts the likelihood of complications for frailty adjusted for other confounders, as we discussed. The second model predicts mortality, but includes both frailty and having a complication as a predictor, as well as the other confounding variables. We can basically then use the joint results from those two regression models to identify three important things. One, what's the total effect of frailty on mortality? So that's basically what's the odds ratio that you would get if you were just looking at the frailty mortality association. Then we get the indirect effect, which is the quantity of that total effect that moves through having a complication. And then we have the direct effect, which is the amount of, of that association that moves directly from frailty to mortality without having a complication in the middle. And basically, we can then use these quantities to calculate the proportion of the mortality risk that moves through the indirect pathway of complications versus the direct non-complication mediated pathway. And again, as you mentioned, looking at figure one in our paper is probably a better way to conceptualize that than listening to me. The second piece was the Bayesian analysis. And, you know, although these are certainly analyses that are more intensive and somewhat more difficult to run, we, we find the results are a lot more intuitive. And I'll try to be brief why, by what I mean around this. So basically, when you run frequentist analysis, so p-value-based analyses, we actually get a, a, an answer fairly quickly, but it's kind of to a question that we maybe didn't really have. And anyone who's ever tried to explain what a p-value means may have a sense of this, right? If we ran this experiment accounting for all of our assumptions over and over and over again, 
would the mediator effect that we found be reasonable if there actually wasn't any mediator effect present? I don't actually know what that means, and, and that's what I struggle with, you know, from a frequentist perspective. With the Bayesian approach, we get an answer to a question that I think we actually have. So given the data that we've collected, along with the knowledge that we had at baseline, what's the probability that the mediation effect that we've measured is greater than zero or greater than some other value that we feel to be or think to be clinically relevant? So I think the challenge is that the underlying math and code and stuff is more complex. The analyses, I'll tell you, take way more time, and they require more planning up front. You need to be really explicit about the assumptions that you're going to make, but the result that you get actually aligns with how your brain thinks, and that's why we tried to take this approach. I love it that you were willing to admit that even you struggle with some of these uh, statistical concepts. So most of our listeners will be familiar with the use of and importance of all of these, you know, often complex statistical analyses in determining the results. However, you also use some advanced statistics to develop the cohorts of interest, right? I'd actually argue that your team did most of the heavy lifting for how we defined our cohort, um, but I definitely agree that the methods you used were advanced and well-directed and I think are a useful way to define a cohort for people who want to work with NSQIP data in the future. Uh, and we really appreciate when, when people do the hard work and we can kind of build on it. What I can say for our analysis is that certainly for the researchers out there, one of the other nice things about this Bayesian approach is that it can actually help you to be a little bit more exact with how you control for the procedure type as a confounder. I think we all know that one of the biggest risk factors for bad outcomes after surgery is the type of surgery that someone is having, and anyone who's tried to count degrees of freedom in a statistical model has run into frustrations about how they're going to control for procedural risk in a regression model because, you know, it can just eat up a ton, a ton, a ton of space, but you also need to be really exact in how you control for it. So just briefly, the nice thing with the approach that we used is that we could actually control for every CPT code, every current procedural terminology code, so every specific surgery um, in our models by adding them as a random variable. And again, just briefly, for people who run uh, random intercept models uh, in a frequentist setting, you recognize that sometimes they just won't work if you don't have a lot of people in every one of these intercepts. The nice thing with Bayesian analyses, if you're patient, you can run this algorithm over and over and over again until it comes together, and that can actually help you to get more exact control over the procedural risk, which again, I think was a strength to using this approach. But that's probably not a great interest to most people, so maybe we should just move on. Okay. So, but this has been all very interesting, particularly because, and thank you for those kind words you said about our paper. Um, but it was, you know, I think a somewhat novel or just a little bit more out there for the journal to deal with. And anesthesiology stuck with us and uh, we worked through some issues and I'm glad you found some usefulness to it. And it didn't just take some years off my life. <laughs> <laughs> so how many patients did you end up with? So we identified a large cohort, over 205,000 patients who were having these intermediate to high-risk surgeries, which certainly allowed us to have a lot more certainty in the results that we generated. And finally, what did you find? Oh, so we finally got here. So what we found <laughs> was that complications are absolutely an important mediator of the frailty mortality association. They account for about 50% of the total effect of frailty on postoperative mortality. I know we're not surprised. We know that complications are a big part of the pathway from frailty to mortality after surgery, but we've been able to quantify it and understand it better. Because we used the Bayesian approach, we're able to compute that the probability that complications mediated at least 50% of the association was over 
80%. So there's a very high probability that the majority of the frailty mortality association is mediated by complications. But at the same time, we also identified that there's still a fairly large chunk of that association that has nothing to do, at least statistically and quantitatively, with complications, and that certainly leads us to have to do a little bit more thinking. Yeah, I would say I was a little surprised that maybe perhaps it wasn't a higher incidence mediated through complications. As were we. Which specific complications did mediate the Frailty Mortality Association? Yeah, so as we discussed earlier, we had tried to break down the different subgroups to try and dig into this a little bit uh, more actively. And basically what we found was that amongst the three subtypes of complications that we looked at, cardiopulmonary complications were the most important mediators of this frailty mortality association. Now, this was most clearly seen when we limited our analyses to the people who just experienced a single complication, but it was consistent with what we found in that noisier but kind of a little closer to reality overlap approach as well. So, you know, we largely found this, the same results in terms of ranking how important these different types of complications were. And did the type of surgery or anything else besides frailty appear to have an effect? So I'm going to answer that in two ways. So the first way is that with these mediation analyses, we can really only focus on these three variables that we're interested in. The exposure, which is frailty, the mediator, which are the complications, and the outcome, which is mortality. The procedure type and the other variables are in there to provide control for confounding, which is a really important assumption that we make in a mediation analysis, but we can't draw any inference about them. However, what we did do was we did look at a different kind of subgroup of patients. We did a sensitivity analysis amongst a group of mixed urgency, so urgent and emergent and elective bowel surgery patients. And we actually found that the proportion of mortality risk mediated by complications seemed to be lower in that group. And then in a nice discussion that we had with the peer review team at anesthesiology, we did some further sensitivity analyses looking specifically at the elective bowel surgery patients where we actually had a very similar result. So I think one of the things we need to look at in the future is why it seems in the emergency and urgent group, the complication mediation effect seems to be even smaller. But because these are secondary analyses, it's hard to dig into it too much, but it's definitely something that we need to look into in the future. And certainly, again, you know, this is one cohort of intermediate and high-risk non-cardiac surgery patients, but there are obviously lots of other uh, surgical populations out there where frailty is going to be relevant and analyses and results like these may be relevant as well. Mm -hmm. So again, I wish we had visuals, but I want to ask you about the different complication subtypes that were associated with frailty and mortality. And when I look at table three and figure three, it is not readily apparent at first that cardiopulmonary complications did have a higher association than, for example, renal infectious ones. Can we start with maybe table three, and will you tell us the difference between any occurrence and what you termed an isolated occurrence? Absolutely. So, you know, this is what I really like about doing Bayesian statistics, is how we can actually derive some inference or kind of derive some understanding from them. So, as you mentioned, from a numbers perspective, when we look at kind of the any occurrence, and this is where we allowed overlap between these complication subtypes, um, all three groups had a very high probability of having some mediation effect. And that's what that, that second column, the probability greater than zero of effect, right? So that's how likely is there a non-null effect. Um, now, we did use something called a Bayes factor, which is basically just a strength of evidence indicator, which did indicate that cardiopulmonary complications were the most likely to be strongly associated with mortality. But again, you know, they, they weren't strikingly different, especially for the infectious and cardiopulmonary ones. 
Now, when we isolated things down to those with an isolated occurrence of a complication, things are, are quite different. And here what we see is that cardiopulmonary complications continue to have a very high probability of being an important mediator. The infectious ones now appear to have very little likelihood of that. And then renal certainly had a reduced association. And we looked at these strength of evidence pieces. It's very clear that cardiopulmonary complications come out ahead. Now, you mentioned, you know, figure three, which shows these different probability distributions for the different types of isolated complications. And this is, again, what's great about Bayesian statistics is that we can actually visualize the numbers that we're reporting. So as you can see, although at first glance, the cardiopulmonary and the renal um, probability distributions, they're kind of centered around about the same area. It seems like a lot of the probability distributions overlap, but we can see there's this big long tail that goes below zero in the renal group, which again shows us that there's just a lot of the simulations that we ran that didn't show renal complications being very important. So we can actually see beyond just the numbers, at what these estimates actually mean. And again, no matter what type of Bayesian analyses you're doing, you can often generate these kind of plots to show the reader in even more detail what things look like. And I think that's a really nice piece of it. In terms of why we found this, likely what it has to do, and again, this is a nice suggestion from one of our reviewers, was to kind of look at how the different complications overlapped. And in fact, what we found was that in our overlap group, the any occurrence group, cardiopulmonary and infectious complications uh, had the highest level of overlap. Overlap. So probably some of the signal that we were seeing in that infectious group was actually cardiopulmonary complications that were coming through as infectious because we left that noise behind. So somebody had an infection and a cardiopulmonary complication, and the way we did that analysis, the noise made infections look worse than they were. When we pulled the noise out, infections really dropped down in terms of the role they play in mediating the mortality association, and cardiopulmonary ones really stood out. You know, I do think that the figures and tables are in this paper particularly, and they always are useful, very useful, but they're just, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and that was really nice the way you described the statistics, being able to create that picture um, that communicates so well. Thank you. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it is important. Hopefully I didn't say a thousand words to describe them, but uh, it's probably worth looking at for readers who are interested in it for sure. You did a great job. Again, I think it's unfortunate we can't just show them the picture to complement your, your explanations. So you wrote about patients dying from complications and the role of, I believe, you know, failure to rescue, which has gotten a fair amount of attention, right? Because maybe we can't reduce our complication rates to zero ever. So is it possible that your results were confounded by the chance that care providers were maybe not just as aggressive in identifying and treating complications in patients they perceived as frail or those that they perceive as less likely to survive or to survive in good shape. So that is absolutely possible. And I think this really highlights why we need to take a different approach when we identify frailty in older patients before surgery, because I agree, there probably were more people who had frailty who didn't want aggressive resuscitation in the postoperative period, and therefore they may have succumbed to the stress of surgery without having really registered a, a serious complication. Um, you know, they may have been less likely to want cardiopulmonary resuscitation as a, a good example of that. We all know even when someone comes back from cardiopulmonary complication uh, and resuscitation, they're often likely to experience subsequent complications. So I think that is an important part. I think the other thing is that we really need to be attuned to the fact that there's really no surgery that's low risk for somebody who's older and has frailty. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason to have a surgical procedure done in somebody who has frailty. 
But we do need to understand how this you know, high-risk older population can uniquely benefit from surgery, but doing it in a way that matches their their needs, their values, and that kind of thing as we move forward. And it may be that it's it's quite reasonable to not be doing aggressive resuscitation, but maybe attempt to, to do surgery and be successful with it. So again, like any good paper, I, I hope that this opens up as many questions as it answers, uh, and certainly there's a lot more to dig into here. I think it helps answer a lot of questions, and I think it does do a very good job in in hopefully reframing the conversation moving forward and how we look at this issue. So, you know, you mentioned this early on, and I want to come back to it, about, you know, the sort of goals of care, I think is, you may not have used that exact phrasing, but, you know, the goals of care of patients who are frail or elderly and why they're undergoing surgery or a procedure. So, you know, as found in this study, you know, you found the complication mortality rates, I think, to be quite high, um, or at least from, you know, our perspective, quite high. 10%, I believe it was, for uh, complications and 1% for mortality rates. And, you know, we are increasingly identifying those at increased risk, be it for mortalities or frailty. However, you know, I work a lot in the preoperative clinic, and I see patients and even healthcare providers, and they look at these numbers, and they think, well, you know, if there's only a 1% risk of mortality, that means there's a 99% risk of survival. And if there's only 10% risk of complications, that means there's a 90% you know, chance of, of no major complications. So, excuse my phrasing, and I don't mean to this flippant, but could this be looked at as perhaps just sort of the cost of doing business? Or in other words, should we move on and focus attention on other aspects that are sensibly being gained with this surgery, such as maybe less pain, an improved quality of life, extended longevity for those who do survive, and conserve resources which are required in trying to impact frailty or other comorbidities, and just go ahead. I think that's a great question, Dr. Schweitzer. And, you know, my initial brief response to it is, for every single patient, whether high risk or not, Providing perioperative care is our business, but it's a, a very individualized decision, you know, for that patient, and, and especially so when they have a risk factor like frailty. You know, it's interesting, in most of our studies, we do research and we develop tools to predict the bad aspects of having surgery, how likely you are to die, how likely you are to have a, a complication. Um, when in reality, personalizing the decision means that we need to actually understand what the likelihood of benefit is, what the expected benefit is, as well as what the expected risk is, and then help a patient and their, you know, their family members, et cetera, to decide how that balance works for them and whether they're willing to move ahead. And realistically, we don't really have many tools to help patients understand their likelihood of benefiting in a way that matters to them from surgery. So in some ways, I think we kind of need to flip the lens on this and start to try and have a better sense of, of what the benefit may be and whether the risk is worth it. I think it's also really important, and I think you framed this really nicely, most people who have surgery, even those who have frailty, typically survive their surgery, and they are alive and at home a year later, the large, large majority of them. So again, if we can get people safely through that perioperative period, then there may be a high likelihood that they can benefit from having surgery. So being frail or having frailty uh, shouldn't be a barrier in any absolute way to someone having surgery. It's a piece of information that helps a patient better understand how likely their periop journey is going to play out, how hard it may be, how rocky the road may be. Um, And it's also a marker that's going to help us as perioperative clinicians 
think a little bit harder about how to provide even more vigilant and high-quality care from someone who is vulnerable but may really benefit from moving through the perioperative period and having their surgery. And I think if we can start to change our thinking around this a little bit, um, then we can also get to work to try to understand how we change the way that we do business to help even more people, despite their high risk, experience a positive surgical outcome, a good recovery, and get the benefit that they're looking to get. Very well said. You know, I think it's all about making sure we align expectations. Absolutely. I hope today's discussion will interest many of our listeners and lead you to read this important article to learn more. Thank you, Dr. McIsaac, for discussing your work with us today. And I wish you well as you continue your efforts to enhance the practice of anesthesiology and strive to improve the care of our patients. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Anesthesiology Journal Podcast, the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Society of Anesthesiologists. Check anesthesiology.org for an archive of this podcast and other related content.